Bibles this morning, just a second, we're going to be getting into 2 Timothy, that great book there. And if you remember, we have been uh, coming through the Bible every week, book by book, not in the depth that we will come through them as we take the books individually and really uh, lay out the material, but what we have been trying to do is to give you an understanding of how the Bible goes together. And I don't know a better way to do that than to just take one book at a time and not only show you how they all go together in your Bible, which we have done, but give you the outline of each book so that as you begin to read it and you begin to study it yourself, <clears throat> you know, you'll know exactly what you need to be looking for. That's one of the problems that I found that Christians have, and it's the main problem that I try to solve for you here. As you know, throughout the week, we have uh, multiple meetings. Uh, everybody that wants to gets to spend time in the Word of God. I told you when we started our church that I'd spend an hour a week with anybody that wanted to learn how to learn the Bible. And over the years, I found out that one of the problems that God's people have that defeats them so quickly when it comes to the Bible is simply this. They begin to read the Bible or try to study the Bible, but they don't know what they're looking for. And consequently, because they don't know what they're looking for, it gets uh, boring very quickly. And uh, you come to the point where after a while, you just kind of give up. You know, I mean, you just think, what's the point? I'm not getting anything out of it. Not too many churches today will take the time to really help you understand. And as you know, we have a, for those of you that, you know, have just gotten saved or have come into our church and are or uh, we have stages for everybody. We have a discipleship program that if you're a, a young man or a young lady that I'll put uh, somebody with you to uh, bring you through and show you the basic fundamentals of the Scriptures. And uh, we're about learning the Word of God. A church is absolutely no good if it doesn't fulfill its mission. And the mission, first and foremost, is to uh, train men and women in the Word of God and then let the Holy Spirit of God take them uh, from there. So that's our job and that is what we try to do here. And so everything we do, everything we uh, try to accomplish is based on um, that principle and the Word of God. Now last week you remember we started the book of 1 Timothy. And I told you by when we entered into 1 Timothy we entered into another segment of the Bible. The book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and, and uh, Titus are commonly called the, the pastoral epistles because they're the books that are written to men who were pastors. And in those books you find, uh, as we saw last week, all the great material that you really need to understand what it takes to be a leader in the church. And we talked about the different places of leadership, the deacons, the elders, and then of course the pastors. And we lay those out, and I showed you how that uh, this book is uh, a must book for anybody who's going to try to uh, become everything that God wants them to be. We saw that, uh, as I said, it was the, it's the handbook for a pastor. It's basically how I operate when I uh, pastor my church. I told you last week that uh, every church has its own philosophy of ministry. Every church has its own uh, style of doing things, but every church ought to have its basic ministry based on the principles of the Word of God. And we saw that the developing the gift, taking men and women and through the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, bringing them to the point where they really develop their uh, relationship with God. 
We talked about the relationship that Paul had with young Timothy. And what a great example that was of, of how in my life as a pastor, my job is to take young men and young ladies and, to, and couples, you know, and to show them uh, and put them on the right track and then train them and get them ready uh, to do whatever God wants them to do. We looked at 12 charges in the book of 1 Timothy that Paul gave to young Timothy about the ministry. And not only the ministry, but his responsibility as a pastor. And now we enter into the book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy, uh, it is clear, and I told you this last week, that, that uh, 1 and 2 Timothy are the last things that Paul writes before he goes home to be with the Lord. He's in a Roman jail, and uh, at the end of his life is eminent. And I told you that it's always an interesting thing. It's always a great perspective to see the last thing or read the last thing that a man or a woman says uh, at the end of their life. And I told you examples of that because uh, it gives their perspective. And there's no greater place where that great lesson uh, comes true than in the book of 2 Timothy. Because in 2 Timothy, it's clear that Paul understands that his time on earth is short. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, The time of my departure is at hand. And he knows he's going home to be with the Lord. And you know, you can't help but feel what Paul must have been feeling at that particular point in his life. There's a real bittersweet of the book of 2 Timothy. You don't see it so much in 1 Timothy, but... You see it in 2 Timothy because I believe the reality began to set in in his life. Here he is sitting in a Roman jail. He's had a very fruitful ministry. Paul was the type of man who was very intense in what he did. There's no man in the Bible that understood his mission better than Paul did. And the, he, he never loses his focus. I don't know of one time, even when he made the mistake in the book of Acts, when God told him not to go down to Jerusalem, and he went anyhow, which wound him up in the mess that he's in, he never lost his focus. His focus wasn't going to Jerusalem because of something that he wanted to do. He had such a burden for his own people. And there's a, a whole case study within that situation in itself. But you know what? You cannot help but see and feel, if you have any kind of intimate feel for the Word of God, that he's happy to be going home. Paul didn't love this world. Paul is the only man that, uh, that in the whole Bible that gives you the insight of how he really thought about this life. He got caught up to the third heaven, and he saw all the things that God had for him. And then just about the time he was in awe of all that God did, God grabbed him by the shirt neck and threw him back down on planet Earth. And Paul never lived his life the same once he saw the glory of God and all that God was and all that God was doing. But he comes back to this earth and he lives his life with one purpose, and that is Christ. And you see it in every aspect of his life. And as you read this, you can't help but see and understand that there's a, there's a happiness to be going home, but there's a sadness because of the relationships that he's built. Paul lo didn't love this world, but he certainly loved the men and women, the brethren that God had put him with. And I don't care how spiritual we become, or we say we are. I don't care how heavenly-minded we are. If you're really doing your job and you're really being what God wants you to be, there's, a, there's a, a tearing between the two. 
Sure, absent the body is to be present with the Lord. But you know what? Even though this world is what it is, and this world is filthy and violent against God, you build relationships down here with men and women who shoulder the ministry and the responsibility with you, and you genuinely love them because you know they genuinely love you. And it's a hard thing. It was a hard thing for him. It's a hard thing for every believer to balance that out between wanting to go be with the Lord and having to be down here. Ultimately, when it comes down to that, no matter how you feel, you want to be with the Lord. But the struggle and the emotion is still there. And you see this as the last thing that he writes, and as I said last week, the last thing that he writes, he has on his mind a young man that he was training for the ministry. Wow, what a perspective of where we ought to be. Now, I don't know what you know about 2 Timothy, but the whole book is built around one theme and one context. And within this book, again, there are many charges. We're not going to have time to look at them all today. We don't really need to. You need to go out of here and understanding what this book is built around. And it's built around one key verse. And that verse is found in chapter 1, verse 6. And here's what it says. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to understand today all that you have for us. We pray, Father, that you'll open up the Scriptures, that you'll illuminate our understanding. Give us wisdom and insight. Help us to see in our own hearts and our own lives everything that you have for us. And, Father, we'll be careful to give thee the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. He says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. Paul wants to stir him up. Hey, you know what? We all need stirred up every once in a while. Because uh, we find from this great book an incredible thing that we all have to deal with. You know, it was in 1975. I told you last week how that I heard a, a great message that really changed my perspective on ministry. Again, in 1975, I heard another life-changing message from an old war horse of a soldier by the name of R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee was an old Southern gentleman. He was certainly one of the last of the old Philadelphian soldiers. And when I heard him preach, he was probably in his 80s. But he hadn't lost any fire and he hadn't lost any steam. And I'll tell you, when he preached that night, it was one of those nights just like I was very impressionable back then. And I was just a young man and I was trying to find my own way. God had doubt in my life and called me, I was sure, to the ministry. But just like everybody else, I had struggles and questions and I'm trying to find my way along to get myself exactly where God wants me to be. God had put a man in my life just like He's putting me in many of your lives. And that man became my mentor. He became the Apostle Paul of my life. To this day, some 30-some years later, he's now well in his 80s. And yet to this day, I, I always look at him as someone who... Uh, I, will never, I would never be where I'm at today if I'm anywhere with God if it wouldn't have been for Him and Him caring enough to give me what God had given Him. And that night as I sat there, I heard old R.G. Lee preach. He preached, his message was, was basic, it was clear, and brother, it was right to the point. He preached out of Psalm 77. And he preached just three, uh, four verses. 
Uh, verse 9, verse 12, which says, Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath, he sh hath in His anger shut up His tender mercies? And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. You know, that night he talked about the number one problem that we have as God's people. It's the number one problem that every pastor has that walks this planet. It is the number one problem and probably the single problem that gets every Christian into trouble at some place in their life. I don't know if you know it, but if you go through the Scriptures, you'll find out that there are three infirmities that are directly listed and specifically named that you and I have to watch out for. This is one of them. The other two are in Romans. There's three infirmities that we have where he names specifically and says, these things are, gonna, are, are your infirmity. And that night he talked about Psalm 77 and he talked about the number one problem. He said, I remember him saying it. He said, the, the reality is that the source or the root of every failure in our Christian lives after we're saved, somewhere, some form, finds its way back to this problem. And the infirmity that we have that is the number one thing that when Paul was talking to young Timothy before he went home to be with the Lord, he was saying, don't, this is the thing you've got to keep in front of you. And he charges him in a number of issues about the same theme. And that same theme is, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Remember what God has done and what God is doing. That night, O.R.G. Lee preached a three-point outline. It was so clear and simple, and I'll never forget it. It moved my heart at that young point of my life like nothing had ever moved. I remember driving home that night, and I was living by myself, and I remember driving home that night, and I, I sat in the car, in the carport, couldn't get out, and I went in the house, and I just, I got on my knees that night, and I said, Oh, God, I don't ever, ever want to forget you or ever forget what you've done in my life. Oh, God, help me never to forget Never to come to the place where I forget where you at, what you've done, and what I need to do. And you know what? That night he preached, that three-point outline was so simple. He preached, first of all, remember the years. And he said the thing that most God's people forget is the day that God saved them. Remember how it was before you got saved versus now. Remember how there was so much disappointment, so much heartache, so many problems. Remember how it was when you stumbled in at night? Remember how it was out there, that way out there without God, without Christ, when you went to bed at night and the uncertainty in your heart of where you'd spend eternity, the fear of death, the fear of dying, the fear of everything? And he said that night, oh, God's people forget to remember the years as an unsaved man. And then he said, remember the works. Remember thy works. And I'll tell you another problem we have, we forget the day God saved us from that mess. You see, as you go along in Christianity and you learn more, you do more, you grow more, it is vitally important that you never forget where you come from. You never forget the way it was before you had God in your life. Or if you do, you're going to lose your perspective. And I never want to forget how I don't dwell on it, I certainly don't glory in it, but I never want to forget how Empty I felt as an unsaved man, trying this and trying that, looking everywhere in education and philosophy and science, everywhere in the world to find something that would 
quench the thirst that my spiritual soul had, and then God did a work in my life the day God saved me. And you can't ever forget to remember the years. You can't ever remember, forget uh, to remember the works the day God saved you. And then he said, the third point was, remember thy works. You remember how far he's brought you. You, rem you, you remember every day of your life how far that he's brought you. Because the first sign of your spiritual demise is when you forget what God has done for you. And the book of 2 Timothy is nothing more in its most simple form. It's Paul's charge to his son in the Lord not to forget in all that he's doing, in the busyness of ministry, in the duties of a pastor, what God has uh, called him to do and God has saved him to do. And you know what? It's so easy to forget those things. You know, most kids, they don't appreciate or remember what their parents did. They really don't. And it's a sad thing. But most kids don't appreciate and remember. I didn't. It, I, I was 25, 26 year old. My dad had already died and, and, I, and I had gotten saved and was trying to do the best I could. And it didn't hit me then to all the sacrifices my mom and dad made for me as I was growing up and doing what God wanted me to do in my, get me ready for what God wanted me to do in my life. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't remember it. It was later. And now I look back on it and I see it even greater of the sacrifice that they made. I'll tell you something else. Most husbands and wives forget how it was uh, when they first got married. That's why they grow apart. Marriage is something you ought to get closer together as you grow, not farther apart. You know why you do? Because you fail to remember. You get caught up on the little struggles that you deal with every day in your life, and you forget to remember that God puts you together for a purpose. He puts you together for a reason. The obstacles you face as a husband and wife, you have to get over together. You have to get over together. I think it's an interesting analogy that the Bible talks about uh, uh, a husband and wife in the ministry together, or a saved husband and wife, like being oxen. We talked about this last week where the Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You don't marry unsaved people. You don't even contemplate marrying unsaved people. You don't even flirt around with unsaved people and get into a relationship with them that you hope they might get saved. It's never right to violate a biblical principle. And it just doesn't work. And somebody can say, well, you know, I hope he'll get saved. Yeah, but what if he doesn't? And then your daughter's already got her infections involved. You've screwed the whole thing up. You never violate Bible principles for any reason. I don't want my daughters to marry an unsaved man hoping, or date an unsaved man hoping that they would get saved in the process because they were a nice guy. You never violate Bible principles. And it's one of those things where, you know, most Christians, they come to the point where they, 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 they take things for granted. And husband and wives forget that God saved them for a reason. Or they get into a relationship with an unsaved person and then the whole thing goes down the tubes. He likens the two saved people to being oxen. And, the, and, and oxen are yoked together. They pull together. They work together. You know what oxen do when they come to a point that they can't get over? This is an incredible thing. When, when you have an ox, two oxes tied to a cart and they're pulling you, and they come to an obstacle they can't get over, you know what they do? They both kneel down. They both kneel down. You know what a husband and a wife do when you come to an obstacle yoked together in Christ because you understand and you remember you have a mission? You get on your knees. 
you have problems in your marriage and you want to solve them, just together, get on your knees and pray it through together. It'll fix your problem. It'll fix your problem. Why? You can't do that without going back and remembering. Remembering. Most God's people take each other for granted. They do. We take God for granted. We do. We take our walk for granted. We take our ministry for granted. We, we, God has a purpose for us, and we fail to remember what that purpose is. And I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's right the number one problem we have. And you're going to find that God, uh, over and over again, in fact, over 350 times in the Old Testament, God tells Israel not to forget or admonishes them to remember. In Psalm 77, where the old boy was preaching years ago, where it said, remember thy work, years, remember thy works, and remember thy wonders. He's talking to Israel historically. He's talking to Israel and telling them, remember the years where you were down in Egypt in bondage. Then you remember the work of God bringing you out in Exodus chapter 12. And then you remember the great wonders that he did of splitting the Red Sea, feeding in the wilderness with manna, and stopping the sun, standing it still in Joshua so you could wipe out the rest of your enemies. They've forgotten those things. That's why last week I told you a great verse in 1 Timothy 4.16 was the verse that said, Take heed unto thyself. The apostles have the same problem. One of the most amazing things that I, I, I sometimes... I almost can't grasp it till I put it in our own lifestyle. Here are 12 men that every day are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not up in heaven. He's not up in heaven and they're down here like you and I. When they get up in the morning, they all met for breakfast. The Lord and 12 men, He laid out the day what they were going to do. It wasn't they opened up a Bible and read what He did. They stood right there and watched and give eyesight back to a blind man. They stood right there and watched him, a man with a woman with a withered leg, watch that leg become whole. They weren't reading it in the Bible someplace. They were eyewitnesses, as John says, of his majesty. They touched him. They handled him. They heard everything that he said. It was a process that there was nothing that they didn't have right there in front of them, that they saw it, they walked with him. It wasn't like they had to come over to my house to ask me questions about the Bible. You were walking down the street with the Lord himself. And you know what? The Bible says that their hearts got hardened. You know why? The Bible says because they remembered not the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Now, if 12 men walking with Jesus Christ for three and a half years, 24 hours, seven days a week, where they're camping out together and they're never really much out of each other's sight and they're watching everything, if they have a problem remembering the miracles and getting hardening in their heart, what are you and I going to have to put up with? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's infirmities that you and I have as a child of God and you better learn what they are. And one of them is we forget. And boy, I'll tell you what, when old Paul begins to take Timothy and to put the finishing touches on before Paul goes back to be Lord, I think he tells him probably the most important aspect of anything in a Christian's life. Honest to goodness, I believe that this is the most important thing I could ever say to you. Because I believe that every problem you get into, its root will work its way back to you have forgotten. You've forgotten where you come from. You've forgotten what God has done for you. And you've forgotten the day God saved you. I believe that with all of my heart. And I'll tell you, it's easy. You see people all the time. There's people come to our church. And, hey, and you know what? And the church, 
the church as you and I or to take it on the chin. There are people who come to our church that I will try to help, that I know before I help them I'm probably going to get it a sharp stick in the eye. You know what? That's beside the point. You do what is right, and you do what you're supposed to do. The church is to put itself in the position to get hosed. Now, you don't do it in the sense of being gullible, but you know what? You've got to do what's right either when other people don't. We've had people come to our church that came for three or four weeks or two or three months, and we've helped them out financially or helped them out here or did this and that, and you know what? They get a better deal and off they go. You know what? I don't like it. You know what? Does it bother me and grieve me? Certainly not because of the money, but because you want them to do what's right. But the bottom line is, hey, that's the business we are in. We are in the business of being transparent, open, and honest that if you want to take a cheap shot at me and use this church, use me, you can do it. I don't have to take it personal. You know why? Because the day coming when you'll have to deal with somebody else about it, not me. I'm here to be used and abused within reason, (laughs) within reason. But that's my job. That's our job. And it's easy for a pastor to forget that. You know why? Because they get so big and they get so powerful and they get so rich and they get to the flat where they, they just can't, they just can't balance it all out. And I'll tell you something. That's, that's one of the real issues that, that, that you really have to come to terms with. This whole thing is how do you walk with God and yet walk with human people and not let one of them or the other one sway you? You know, you can walk with God so much that you become so heavily minded you're worthless down here on planet Earth. And then you can come so worldly down here with people doing good things and you lose your perspective of what God wants you to do. There's the balance. And the only answer to that balance is to remember and not to forget. That's why he says, take heed unto thyself. Take heed unto thyself. Well, when you come into chapter 1, we need to start moving through some of these. We'll do them quickly. But when you come through chapter 1, verse 6, here's what he says in verse 6, our key verse anyhow. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. And the first thing he tells Timothy to, to remember is remember who you are. Remember who you are. Once you are saved, the Bible says, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You're not the same anymore. In fact, when you come through the New Testament, you'll find that there's six things that changed about you the day you got saved. The first thing that changed about you is found in Colossians, and that is your affections. You don't, you don't, you don't have affections for the things that you used to have. It changes. In Ephesians chapter 2, the second thing that changed is your citizenship. You're no longer a citizen down here anymore. You see, I live in America, and technically speaking, I'm an American. I have an American passport. But in my mind, I know that my citizenship lies somewhere else. I'm not a Democrat, nor am I a Republican. I think they're both corrupt. I'm not an independent. When it comes to being a Baptist, I'm not a Southern Baptist, a Northern Baptist. I'm a renegade Baptist is what I am. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a Bible student. And all I can tell you is this. When you realize and understand that who you are in Christ, you become a new citizen. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that your position changes. Now you're seated in heavenly places. Matthew chapter 22 it talks about the fact that your love changes. I don't love the things that I thought I used to love. I love the things of God. I love the things that are perfect, the things that are pure. 
I don't love inanimate objects. I don't love my car. I don't, I don't love this suit. I don't love this hat. I don't love this. I love your hat. I don't love these things. We spend so much time loving things but cannot love us back that we get desensitized to what really love means of loving something that can love you back. But that's the way we are. You know why? Because we have forgotten who we are. I'll tell you something else. When you got saved, your conversation changed in the book of Philippians. Now, conversation is the word that also is an old English word that also means it's a great word because it means more than just talk. See, the old pure English understood the concept of the Word of God. You see, we take the word conversation, and today we think conversation means to speak. Back in the old days when the English was pure, the word converse, conversation meant more than that. It meant lifestyle. You know why? Because whoever come up with that pure English language, think about it, also understood that whatever you said is what you really are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So conversation was used in its purest form, not only what you say, but how you live. It changed the day you got saved. And I'll tell you something else. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that now, once you're saved, you're an ambassador. You have a job to do. You can't ever forget that. You're an ambassador. You no longer can look at your job like you used to look at it. You no longer as a Christian can look at everything you get into. Now, in everything you do, you represent not yourself, not your country. You represent Christ. You represent Christ at work. You represent Christ in your neighborhood. When you go out there and play ball on Friday night, you represent Christ. Wherever you do, wherever you go, whatever you accomplish in life, you now can never forget and you always have to remember you're His ambassador. And you are showing off what God is. And you are displaying His honor and glory through your life to a world that is lost without hope and without Christ. So the first thing he said to young Timothy, don't ever forget, remember who you are. That in 1 verse 7, he says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Second thing you've got to remember is, don't be afraid. Let me tell you something. The number one thing that keeps God's people from serving God is a simple little thing, you're afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid of what people's going to think about you. You're afraid your buddies are going to laugh at you. You're afraid that people are, are not going to look at you the same way. And you're afraid. And I'm telling you right now, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that there's no fear in love. But perfect love uh, casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. And the more you perfect your relationship with God and the more you love Him, the more you don't have to be afraid of anything. Because you begin to get your perspective. Now, the, you know, this, is a, this is the common thing, and this is so the way it is. Men on planet earth are afraid of everything about what they ought to be afraid of. The Bible says, fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The Bible says, Noah moved with fear in the preparing the ark that is saving his household. Today, we don't fear the things that we ought to fear, and the whole thing is backwards. We've lost our concept, and Christians are afraid of what they should not be afraid of, and the things they should be afraid of, they're not afraid of. It's as simple as that. Then he comes to chapter 1, verse 8, next verse under it. He says, remember, don't be afraid. Then he says, be, thou, uh, therefore, uh, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Let me tell you something. 
The first thing you got to worry about, the first problem you'll have is being afraid. You know what? That'll keep you from serving God. You know what the second thing will keep you from serving God is? Being ashamed. Some people are ashamed to stand for God because they're afraid and they're ashamed to take a stand. Hey, you know what? Nobody likes to be made fun of. Nobody does. Nobody likes to be called names. Nobody likes to, uh, you know, go to work and have the, uh, you know, when you used to be the head center with all the guys, you know that, and, uh, you know, now they make fun of you and they call you silly little names like preacher and deacon and, and all these things. And you know what? It bothers you when you're a young Christian. And, you know, uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth first, uh, to, the, uh, to the Jew first and also uh, to the Gentiles. And you know what? I have come to the conclusion after many, many years in the ministry, <laughs> I don't give a flip what anybody thinks about what I believe. I could care less. I know in whom I have believed and I know all of goes along with it and I'm telling you, you come to a important point in your life and you don't care. You can give it back just as good as, you, as they can dish it out to you. Then you find out if they really like it. You see, they'll intimidate some of you. You get a little older, you won't get intimidated. Go down to work there someplace, so he says, and says, 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 when he says, hey, how you doing? Well, I'm doing just fine. I'm saved today. How are you doing? Another good one is, what's up? Well, heaven's up. What's new? Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 22. I mean, you know, you give it back as good. I remember one time, years ago, years ago, old Bill Eakin, Old Bill Eakin. I saw him on two occasions. Old Bill Eakin, one time we were with Mel Sabaka. We were going down to Bridgeport, Ohio. Mel was preaching down there. I was leading singing. And, and uh, Bill just went around for, I guess he was our bodyguard. We stopped a little truck stop. And we didn't have a truck stop to get a piece of pie. We had about two hours to kill before we had to go to the service. And we didn't have anything to eat. So we stopped and got a little bite to eat. And there was the truck drivers over here on the deal over here, you know. And we were sitting at a table. And we were really out of place. And one of those truck drivers is just taking God's name in vain up one side and down the other. And when he kind of eyeballs us that we're strangers, you know, and, and I, oh, they just really got going. They were just taking God's name in incredible uh, fashion. And we were down there, you know, and Bill said to Mel, he says, you catch the check here. And uh, he walks over in a big old truck driver. I mean, like five or six of them. Old Bill walks over and he put his arm around two of them. He says, hey, boys, he says, I heard you talking about a friend of mine. And he said, I just wanted you to know you ain't got the true scoop on it. Truck driver looked up and said, what, we, we don't even know you. Who, what, we weren't talking about any of your... He said, yeah, you were. He said, you're talking about my friend Jesus Christ. And he said, he's not the person you, you, you're saying all those bad things about. Boy, if you want to watch five truck drivers shrink in their seats. <laughs> we were one place one other time eating down there. We got into more trouble down there outside of Steubenville. And there's a rough place, Steubenville, Ohio, back in the 50s and the 60s. That's where old Hank Williams died. Oh, Hank William, remember the guy used to sing, I saw the light, I saw the light, died in the back of a taxi cab and heroin overdose uh, back in Steubenville, Ohio. And he's back there drunk and on drugs and the cab driver's taking him someplace and he turns around and he says, hey, Mr. Williams, sing me that song, I saw the light. You know what Hank Williams said? He said, there is no light, there is no light. Died in the back of that old cab. We're down there in Steubenville getting ready to do some preaching. We went into a restaurant. 
We're sitting down there, and old Bill, he's sitting over there again. We're down through there, and there's a bunch of down there, and we got our food, you know, and sat down, and old Bill, he said, let's ask the blessing, and, you know, they, they pray. They, I mean, I, I, Christians today, when they bless their food, it's like look around, see who's looking, just get this in quick and get it out. Back then, it, it didn't work that way. The whole room got their food blessed, whether they wanted it or not. And it wasn't out of place. It was just, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we ask you to bless this food and take it to our body's strength. In Jesus' name, amen. And everybody in the world. And old Mel prayed, and one of the guys over here, one of the old rough town guys, he says, hey, boys, he says, to all the people where you come from, pray like that before they eat. And old Bill said, no, nah, boy, the hogs don't. I thought we were going to get killed that night. <laughs> you know what? He wasn't ashamed, you see. He wasn't ashamed. We got a bunch of Christians today because they got no steel in the backbone. Because, And I want to say this going in. I appreciate the men in this church because I meet with, with you throughout the week and you tell me the stories of your adventures and, uh, you know, of getting in work and getting it into it with them and that's what you need to do. Don't be ashamed of who you are and what God has done for you. And you've got to be able to take a stand. That's all there is to it. And, uh, you know, I've had people, I was preaching one time when I was up there, and, and, uh, and, and I was going to town, and about halfway back, one of the old deacons, you know, that was so out of fellowship with God, he was saved at all, he yelled out, he said, I don't like the way you speak. And I didn't even lose a beat. I said, well, hang on, pal, you're going to like it less before I get through, and kept right on going through the middle of it. Don't ever be ashamed of what he's done for you. You've got to remember. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. The next thing he tells young Timothy, remember this, Timothy, God is able. God is able. God has a process to bring you through life. He didn't bring you this far to leave you now. I have young men all the time, young couples. They'll get to the point in their life, and maybe God will give them some great hurdle to go up. And it's a natural thing. It's a natural thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's just part of the process, and you'll stumble at it. I had a young man one time that God called him to preach, and he was going to another city, and he came in to see me, and he was, he was, and this was a good kid, and he, he's a guy that uh, had it together. He could have got the job, could get the job done, and he came in and he sat down, and he was visibly shaken. And I understand where he's at because he's making a big leap, boy, leaving his friends, leaving every family, and taking his wife and kids and going across the country to start a church. And I told him, he, his, his, his fear was he was afraid he couldn't do it. He had a lack of faith. He was afraid he'd fail. And I just simply told him, you know what, pal? Look back in your life. Remember where you come from. Remember the first time we met. Remember what you did before you got saved. Remember how God brought you through all these things. Well, the same God that brought you to this point will take you the rest of the way home. You're just in that part of your life. You've got to remember, He is able. Moses struggled with it. Moses argued back, with, back and forth with God all the time. And... Uh, uh, Moses kept said, uh, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And I'm going to tell you something. A lot of God's people think they can't do it. And the, the key is you can't do it. Let God do it. He is able. We talk about faith. We talk about faith being this. And people talk about faith being, well, I just have faith to believe when I can't. Faith is never about anything you can't see. It's just where you look. 
I have faith in God out here where I can't see because I can look back here and I can see him being faithful and everything up to this point. I know he'll be faithful out on this point. It's as simple as that. Then he says in chapter, chapter, uh, chapter 2, he says in verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the thing that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And he says, you know what? Remember to teach others. We talked about it last week where I told you about the eight things that a pastor has to be able to do well. One of them was duplicate himself. Be able to take people and train them up and commit to them what he got committed to him. And you train somebody up so that they will take what they've got and give it to somebody else and the process goes on. The man that taught me didn't get it all out of the Bible by himself. There's somebody that taught him. And there was somebody that taught him. And somebody that taught him. The end of the process goes on down through the history, down through uh, the history of the United States, back through Europe, back through everything, that there's always been faithful men that have learned what God had from somebody else and then gave it to them, plus what they already learned themselves, and the process goes on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God put Adam and Eve down here, He said physically to them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Your job and my job is to do that spiritually. We take the Word of God and we reproduce ourselves. God doesn't build a church by adding. God builds a church by multiplying. You multiply and you replenish and you refurbish by winning people to Christ. Then He says in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, on a great lesson. Thou therefore endure hardness as the good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth and tangle himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen to be a soldier. He says, Timothy, remember, you're a soldier. Remember, you've got to endure hardness. And remember, you're here to please him, not yourself or anybody else. Christ has called you to be a soldier. You know, when I go back through the Bible, the Old Testament is just littered with principles and concepts that illustrate all the New Testament principles. I look at David, and David is a great, great man in many, diff many different ways. One of the greatest ways that he is is the fact that he is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is a picture of Christ in the sense that he is a captain of the army of Israel. And you're going to find back in 2 Samuel chapter 23 a listing of men who were separate from all the other warriors in Israel. And you've got to remember now that when Israel went to war, back in the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers is called Numbers because it is a book where they, they called out and numbered the men that were going to go to war to fight these battles. A long time later, the nation of Israel's army is an incredible army. They are probably the greatest military power on the face of the earth back then. They certainly are the greatest military power today on the earth. And uh, their ability to do what nobody else can do and survive through the wars that they've been through uh, is quite incredible in a study in itself. But you're going to find back there that David, out of all the host of Israel, he has a list of men who stand head and shoulders above everybody else. They're called David's mighty men of valor. And he goes through detail and he talks about some of their exploits. Men who stand above the rest. Men who, if you study their lives and what they've done, I believe are an example of what we ought to be today in our relationship with Christ. 
you'll find that these men have tremendous courage. Courage is something that is lacking today in men's lives for God. You're going to find that they have determination. Nothing seems to stop them. There's no obstacle in their battles that makes them afraid. One of these men single-handedly killed 800 men himself. Now that seems like it's an impossible thing. Yeah, that's exactly the way we look at it. And yet we are told that the Bible said in Joshua chapter 1 that if a man obeyed the Word of God and did what he was supposed to do, that nothing or nobody would stand before him. So we see the examples, one after the other. Men with courage, men with determination, men with incredible discipline, that they work together, that they understand each other together. And then I guess the greatest quality that they have is they have a tremendous loyalty. A loyalty to each other. A loyalty to, to their commander. A loyalty to everybody that is connected with it, that they work together and understand together, and they realize that they're in a war. You see, the reason why Christianity has the problems it's got, a couple of reasons. The first reason is, as we have lost our militants, we no longer understand the sting of battle in our faces. And the reason I know that is because any man who's been in battle, any man who's been in combat, I don't know if you know it or not, but yesterday or this weekend, they had the, um, down at the, uh, uh, downtown, they had the uh, 1st Marine Division reunion. 1st Marine Division went all the way back to Guadalcanal. And you're going to find that uh, when, they, when they had every, every, every guy from, some of them had, were in wheelchairs. For World War II, up through World War, uh, uh, Vietnam War, up to everything. Marines around there. And they had a guy on the news the other night, and he was talking, guy was probably, you know, he had a little hat on that said Guadalcanal, you know, and, uh, and uh, what a party that was. And he, he, he's down there, and he says, he says, you know what, he says, he says, he says, he said, that's what makes it great. He says, no matter where you go, whatever, once you're a Marine, you're always Marine, and we are brothers together. And I learned him talking about that, and there I watched the old guys and the young guys, the middle-aged guys, the guys from World War II. I watched the Vietnam guys pushing the World War II guys around in wheelchairs, the Korean War guys, the young guys, and the guys, and, I, and I, you saw every phase of Marine Corps uniform probably in the history of the Marine Corps. And they were, they were everywhere. And I thought to myself at that point, wow, there's unsaved guys that are probably dying and going to hell, and they got more cohesiveness because of the remember that the battles they were in together made them brothers. We don't have that today. We don't understand the real battle, so we fight among ourselves. That's the way it works. We lose the battle. Why? We forgot. We haven't remembered. And because we haven't remembered, we've lost that concept of really understanding that battle, war, combat makes brothers. Anybody who ever read the book Band of Brothers understands the bond of the 101st Airborne who jumped from Normandy all the way through to Nijmegen and all the way through in every major battle and jump in World War II. To this day, they understand that concept of how they are bonded together. I've many times looked at things like that and I thought to myself, if you could just get God's men to stand together and hang together like that instead of picking each other apart and fighting each other because they can't direct the battle what we could get done for God. There isn't any many mighty men of valor around today. And of course, that's a distinction. 
courage, determination, self-discipline, and loyalty. The Marines call it semper fidelis, always faithful. Chapter 2, verse 15. The next one, study to show thyself the proven of God, a workman, but needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The next thing he says is, remember to study. Remember to study. And I'm telling you, I told you this last week, and I've said it over and over again. He says in that thing, study to show thyself approved to God, a work with needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Four things here, four things. Let's start the back, the bottom, and work up. He says, not to be ashamed. You see, the thing that will keep you from being ashamed, we talked about this earlier, is getting into the Word of God. Once you get into the Word of God, you learn a whole bunch of things. You learn that God has called you to be a soldier. You learn that you've got to endure a hardness. And uh, you learn that you, you learn how to fight. You learn how to defend yourself. So therefore, you're not ashamed. The next thing he says, working up from the bottom, is to be a workman. It's going to take work. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to labor in the Scriptures. You're going to have to reschedule your, 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 your life. You're going to have to make the learning of the Word of God a priority. You're going to have to come to the conclusion where you don't forget who you are, you don't forget you're a soldier, and you've got a mission to accomplish. And so what you do is you clear the things out of your life, put them in a restocking order, whatever you've got to do, to make sure when the Word of God is taught, you are here. As simple as that. And then it says, approved. Not under the preacher, but under God. Approved under God. You ain't got nothing to prove to me. I'm never impressed by what somebody knows about the Bible. That tells me nothing. I am never impressed by what so I have people all the time come up and say, well, so-and-so, he really knows the Bible. Or, Boy, she really knows the Bible. And I say, yeah, they do. But I'm not impressed by that. I am never impressed by what so I never have been all of my life. I am, I am never impressed by what somebody knows about the Bible. I'm impressed with what he does with what he knows. That's what I'm impressed with. I'm never impressed by what he or she knows. I'm impressed by what you do with what you know. You can know it and do nothing with it, and it's worthless. The end result of what you know is what you do. Don't tell me what you know. Show me what you got. We're building the church. We got a mission. We're trying to build men and women. Show me what you got. Don't tell me what you got. I'm never impressed. And that's something you need to learn because in life there are going to be people, Christian people, who try to impress you. They don't want to be approved unto God. They want to be approved unto men. And they're always going to come around saying this or that. And they're always going to be trying to get you to pat them on the back, give them an attaboy. Let me tell you something. You don't have to. You want to, you want to, you want to impress me? Show me what you're made of. Show me when push comes to shove and we got things we got to get done. And there's people here that need to be trained. Show me if you're trying to help me or you're trying to hurt me. That's all I ask. Don't tell me what you know. I want to see what you got. Next one, chapter 2, verse 20, 21. He says, but verse 20, but in the great house there were not only vessels of gold and vessels of silver, but also of wood and earth, some of honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for, uh, unto every good work. Well, he says this, he says, remember God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. You see, most people don't figure this out. The goal of God, and it's a good goal, 
is he wants and demands honor and glory from everything and everybody on planet earth. Because he's God, he rightly should demand it because he deserves it. Now what happens is that we as little gods try to take that honor and glory from him. And of course, you're going to get in trouble doing that. And the bottom line simply is this. At the end of your life and the end of my life, it will be looked back on and you will either be written down as a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor, one or the other. You see, God is going to get honor and glory out of your life one way or the other. God is going to get honor and glory out of your life because you submit yourself to Him and you let God use you and God grows you and you learn the Word of God and then God takes you and at the end of your life you look back and people say, you know what, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wouldn't be for that gal, wouldn't be for that guy, if it wouldn't be for this. And in your life, even though you're human, you have problems, you screw up, the bottom line is the consistency of figuring out what God wanted to do through your life and then had done it is overwhelming and everybody understands you were a vessel of honor. I preach funerals of young men. I preach funerals of young ladies. That were some of the hardest funerals to preach. Because I knew in my heart, and sometimes the moms and dads asked me to say so, that this young man is dead here today because he didn't do what God wanted him to do. Mom and dad knew it. I knew it. And if the kid could tell you right now, he'd do it. Old friend of mine preached a, preached a funeral one time for an unsaved guy. And this old boy was incredible. I wish I would have had his guts, but I don't. And this old boy one time got up. They asked him to preach a funeral of an unsaved biker. And everybody knew he was lost. And I'm telling you what, you never saw such a sad thing. And I went with him to the funeral. And his mom was crying, his dad was crying, and they all were professing Christians. And this kid lived a wanton life that was just a wreck. Didn't go to church, played games with God and everybody else. That boy, that little boy got up there and his friends are crying and they're all supposed to be Christians. This old boy got up there and when he opened up his sermon, he simply said this, I do believe, ladies and gentlemen, that if we all would have shed this many tears over him while he was alive, we would probably not be shedding them today over his death. And then he went on from there. So true. So true. Let me tell you something. At the end of your life, God's going to get honor and glory out of it one way or the other. He's either going to use you, and you're going to do everything God wants you to do, and you're going to be used of Him, and you're going to be hung up there, and you're somebody who followed the rules and did what was right, or you're going to do your own thing, and you're going to thumb your nose at God, and you know what? At the end of your life, people are going to look at you and say, you know what, that's what happens to a child of God doesn't do what's right. One way or the other, He's going to get the honor and glory. You might as well just understand it. You've got two choices to make. Your first one you've got to make is to be saved. Once you're saved, you have another choice to make, and that is to be used. And those two choices, you don't get around one way or the other. Well, then we come into chapter 3, moving right along here. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. Know this also in verse 1, that in the last days perilous times shall come. He says in 3, verses 2 through 5, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth spacers, on down through there. Verse 5, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. He says, remember, Timothy, where you're at. Perilous times. Remember, Timothy, you're dealing with perilous people. Perilous people. 
and you're living in perilous times. You're living in a day and age where the Christian world has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. You're living in a world where as a Christian, no good deed you do will go unpunished. You're going to get clobbered any way you go. And you've got to realize that the church, the body of Christ today, only has a form of godliness. It's like the nation of Israel was. If you go back to the nation of Israel in David's time or Solomon's time, and you'd look at what they were doing back there, and then you'd walk into the nation of Israel right before Nebuchadnezzar comes down when Zedekiah's in charge or, or Ahab's in charge, you wouldn't be able to put the two in the same context. But because there's so much time between the two, and it's all written in a book that nobody reads anyhow, we lose sight of that. If you had lived in a Philadelphian church age in the real days when men like Jonathan Edwards, just like George Whitfield preached on Boston's Common and 30,000 people came to a saving knowledge of Christ in one afternoon, old Ben Franklin said, he said, when I went to hear George Whitfield, he never put any money in my pocket, left it all at home because I always had this urge to give him everything I had. He says, one night, he says, I walked off at clearly one mile from where George was preaching with no microphone, no amplification, no sound system. He said you could hear every word of his message clearly. Why? Because they have the power of God in his life, and God was using him in a great way. We don't see that today. It's all a sham. You know why? It has a form of godliness, but it denies the power, and the power is the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. So what you see is a big empty shell. What you see is Jesus talked about the scribes and the Pharisees when he said in the book of Matthew that they got whited sepulchers. They're beautiful on the outside. They're painted. They got stained glass windows. They got all the great beauty that the world could want. But on the inside, there's dead man bones. Form of godliness. Looks good, sounds good, smells good, but it isn't real. No power. No power. The bottom line is it's about your money. It's about today that a pastor gets this grandioso idea that he wants to be the number one in whatever he does, and you're going to pay the tab for it. So he drives his people, never teaches them the Bible, never gives them anything spiritually. If you've got a problem, you come to see him. He ain't got time. He's the pastor. He'll send you to a Christian counselor, a Christian psychologist, or worse. But he wants your money. He wants you there. He wants everything you've got so he can do whatever he wants to do, form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. Heavy emphasis on the word denying. Then we got in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Goes right along with this one, really. He says, But continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. He says, Those things you learned, remember who taught them to you. And from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which be able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for, uh, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He says, Timothy, remember the book God gave you. The number one reason for that Bible is doctrine. Doctrine shows you what's right. And you are in time learn to rightly divide that book to know what's right and what's wrong. He said that the man of God may be perfect. He's not talking about perfectly as far as sinless. He's talking about perfect as far as the work of God. God wants to do a perfect work through you, and the only way He can do that perfect work is to have you in the Word of God where He can grow you, 
multiply you, use you, train you, and show you what's right and what's wrong. That's why it says that the man of God may be perfect. Watch it very careful. Thoroughly furnished. All the new translations say uh, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly finished. And by doing so, they destroy one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible. It's not thoroughly, it's thoroughly. It starts from the inside out. It goes through you, thoroughly. And it's not finished or equipped, it's furnished. We studied a couple of Wednesday nights ago about the tabernacle. It had furnishings in it. Seven-pronged candlestick, shoe bread, the shoe bread table, the altar of incense. All that stuff is a picture of something in your life that is spiritual that you furnish for the Holy Spirit of God to rest in. And when He doesn't have it, you grieve Him. Simple as that. He says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I charge ye therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. He says to him here, remember to preach the Word of God. My job is to preach the Word of God in a world that won't endure sound doctrine. That's just the way that it is. That's why you can't be ashamed. That's why you got to endure a hardness. You're going, you're preaching a negative message to a world that wants nothing negative and everything positive. I'm telling you something, the single issue that has sent our country down the path of destruction is pastors teaching to preach the Word of God and becoming teachers. I don't know if you know it or not, but back in the 20s they had a thing called prohibition. And prohibition is when literally booze was illegal anywhere in this country. Prohibition came in single-handedly by one man. And it wasn't a congressman, it wasn't a mayor, it wasn't a president. It was a Bible-believing preacher called Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday gave up a career as a baseball player when God called him to preach. <clears throat> he single-handedly took on a liquor business in America and preached from one coast to the other, and literally by his preaching of the Word of God, turned this country into a dry country. It got re re repealed under <coughs> Franklin Roosevelt, <coughs> But the bottom line is the power of preaching of the Word of God shows you that it changed the country then, it'll change it now. You'll never change anything or anybody by just teaching. You have to be able to preach in season, out of season. you got to reprove, rebuke, exhort with long, long suffering and doctrine. You cannot do that in teaching. And I have made up my mind, I am going to turn some preachers out of here or die in the process. Teaching is fine, I'm all for it. But you know what? This church needs preachers. It's as simple as that. Ever see the movie Elmer Gantry? <clears throat> Elmer Gantry starred Burt Lancaster as an evangelist that got shacked up with a female woman evangelist and they become drunk and bums and, and everything else putting on the front out there that uh, they were doing it, getting your money. You know why? Sinclair Lewis was an old demon-possessed, depraved person who hated Billy Sunday with a passion, and he spent all of his money putting out that movie to discredit Billy Sunday. That's the power of preaching. You'll know when you're doing something right when they start making whole movies and spending millions of dollars and hiring people to betray and assassinate your character. You're doing something right. Old Billy Sunday, he endured an affliction. He endured a hardness. Old J. Frank Norris did the same thing with the Southern Baptist Convention. He took on the whole convention. 
They tried to hang him one time, and he said, you better not go out there. There's nine men down there waiting to hang you. He got his Bible, walked right down, got on the back of a pickup truck, and preached to them, and nine men got saved instead of hanging him. That's J. Frank Norris. Go to the Internet sometime, type in Peter S. Ruckman, and see what comes up. You'll get every internet in the world destroying a man's character that took a stand on the Word of God. And the only reason you and I have a Bible today is because of men like that going through Frank Norris, going back the line that held the line and did what was right. Remember, he says, you got to preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. The legacy of this church will not be kept by teaching. It will be kept by young men getting on fire for God where you can flat get up and preach the Word of God. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 7, he said, I fought a good fight, almost done. I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. He says, remember, finish what God has started in your life. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it on the day of Jesus Christ. When God saved you, God started a work. You need to make sure you finish your end of the deal. Paul likens it, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. You go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 through 27. He talks about, he talks about liking it to running a race. He talks about the fact that in this course that we're running in life, it's like running a race. And I've learned over the years that in this race, the first thing you got to do is run as hard as you can. Second thing you got to do is stay in your own lane. Third thing you got to do is no false starts. Next thing you got to do is don't look at the hurdles that's in front of you, you got to jump over. And the last thing, and this is probably the most important, don't get watching the people in the grandstand watching you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that a man strives for the mastery. He runs hard. He runs fast. But he's not crowned because he doesn't run lawfully. You've got to do it by the book. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says this. Henceforth there laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord of righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. And the next thing he says... Remember, Timothy, that all this stuff that I've told you and all that you're going to do, remember the judgment seat of Christ is around the corner. There's five crowns in the New Testament that you can get as a New Testament Christian. And that Bible says that uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to stand before God, and someday we're going to stand before God and we're going to lay our crowns at His feet. That doctrine in the old church was such a profound thing that even in your hymnal right there, the old hymns of the faith. On page 418, you got a song that simply is titled, And Must I Go In Empty-Handed. It just simply says, And must I go in empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go in empty-handed, must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul which to to greet him, must I empty-handed go? And yet, my friend, I'm telling you, God's people today are living their lives in every form and fashion except for God and what He's called them to do. 
They'll fit God into their schedule instead of fitting their schedule into God. They'll give God what's left over in their life. They'll give God what's left over in their time. They'll give God what's left over in everything in their life. To them, life is down here doing all you want to do and getting all you can get and just forgetting the concept that God saved you. And he tells Timothy, remember, the number one problem you and I are going to have is to forget to forget what God has done, where he has brought us for, and forget the fact that we're here for a purpose and we have a mission. And that nothing, no circumstance, no problem, no trouble, no person, no anything, dissuade you from what God has called you to do. Then lastly, and I'm done, chapter 4, verse 17. This is probably the most important concept right here. They're all important, but this one says it all, and I understand this. Verse 17 says, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The last thing he says here in this chapter, if you study it very carefully, Paul begins to go down through the chapters, or the verses. And he starts, <coughs> he starts to remember... One of the things that he says, in in fact, it's the last thing he says to Timothy. And it, to me, is one of the most telling statements in all the Bible between Paul and Timothy. When he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. Wow, there's some lessons in there that sometime I'll share with you. He says, do thy diligence to come before winter. You know, I look at this thing and down through here you can see where Paul wants Timothy to come. He wants Timothy to come. Because I guess like any human being, Paul, he feels the weight of where he's at. He knows he's going to die. And he lists down through there, he says, only Luke is with me. He lists down there who has stayed with him. He lists down there who has done him wrong. You couldn't be a man like Paul and take the stand that he took and do what he did without not having some of God's people try to clobber him. And as he comes down through that last chapter and those last verses, he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. You know, I've often thought, I wonder if Timothy got there in time. You know, I wonder if Timothy was as diligent in everything as he appears to be. I wonder if Timothy got there and it was too late. Paul had already had his head cut off. I think about that thing and I think about Paul sitting in that old jail cell and thinking about that, recanting in his ministry. And yet he comes down through there and he talks about those that have stayed with him and those that have left him. He says, Timothy, he says, do your diligence to come before winter. But then he says in verse 17, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You know what he's saying, Timothy? Remember this. The bottom line is this. You and him are all you need. You and him are all you need. You better develop the character qualities in your life to do the work for God as if you're all by yourself and everybody else has forsaken you. It's nice to have people around you. It's nice to have support around you. And it's nice to have people that love you around you. But you know what? You better not rest in that. You better learn and you better do what you do for God like you and Him are the only one in existence. Because there may come a time in your life when it just might be you and Him. That you can't rely on your wife, you can't rely on your kids, you can't rely on your friends, that you're in a situation where it is just you and him. And if you haven't lived your life that way before you get into that situation, you will fold up like a broken accordion when you get there. 
The bottom line is this. People are nice and they're great, and I understand the concept of the ministry, but you better get it in your head and in your heart that the truth of the matter is people will fail you, they will let you down, and they will turn their back on you, and their immorality, even though you have people that love you and are faithful in everything you do, and thank God for it, the bottom line is don't ever trust in anybody more than you do Him. Because ultimately, when push comes to shove, He may be the only one there. I'm telling you, the greatest problem we have and the greatest problem you'll always have is to work at remembering what He's done for you. When you get into the ministry or you get into leadership <clears throat> or you grow and you come to the place that I give you some responsibility, you're going to understand the, the, <clears throat> the loneliness of that in the midst of everything that's going on. You're going to see how that is immediately going to separate you because now you may have to make hard-line decisions over people that just the other day you could go do whatever you want to do with and you still can, but that decision may separate you from them. And in doing so, you find out really who your friends are and who they aren't. You find out who's along for the ride and you find out who's with you and got your heart and going to go to the end with you. That's the way it is. But you never come to the place where you forget you never come to the place. I wish I could sit here and tell you from that time back there as a young kid, when I got on my knees that night and I asked God, never. Let, I wish I could sit here and tell you that I never forgot Him all, all that time, but that would be a lie. But I'm telling you right now, every day of my life, I work and fight never to forget, and that's what you have to do. If you want to put the warfare and the battle someplace, Divide it out from the people you don't like. Divide it out from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And just put it into that category right there. You have to fight every day to remember who you are, what he did, what your job is, and to remember to do it by the book, to do it right. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father.